Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello. Hello. This is Megan Baker. And Lauren Malika. And you are retuning in to Spooky Psychology. Retuning in because we all hope that you're listening every time we release a new episode. Based on stats, it looks like you are. So, yeah. Thanks, friends. Thank you, friends. Welcome back. Welcome we're, back. We're trying a new microphone. New year, same me, but new microphone. So it's a <laughs> very cozy in here. It is very cozy. We're uh, trying to figure out a bunch of computer shit right now with very mixed results. So we are huddled quite closely together around our new microphone. Yes. That I believe was a Christmas, Christmas gift. Yep. For Lauren. Very grateful. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you. Mitch, so much for supporting the podcast. He's an angel prince. He is an angel prince, I feel. We've met him several times. I will concur that he is an, <laughs> he an, is an angel, angel prince. prince. Um, yeah, so this is exciting that we're back in the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, we have more topics for you, but to kind of get things started, we definitely wanted to give a shout out to our patrons. So one is... Brandy. Hey, Brandy. I can't remember how to say her last name. It's like schmuzzer. But Brandy, thank you for being a patron. Thank, thank you for you, all of your Brandy. support always. Thank you, Mary, for continuing to be a patron. Mary Schufreiter, I do know how to say her last name. We will work on our pronunciation in the future. Thank you so much, both of you, for supporting us. We appreciate it. We do. It's really helpful. It means a lot to us, and we just appreciate everybody who's tuned in so far. We do. We also, uh, you know, strongly suggest maybe we'll throw this in up top. If you have friends that you think might like our podcast, send it their way. Share the love. Yes. If you have seasons of love. If you have coworkers that you feel like are creepy deep down. Maybe let them know. <laughs> you seem weird enough. <laughs> let me show you this. It's like, hey, person in the cubicle next to me, I can't help but notice that you seem super weird. I'm uncomfortable when I'm around you, therefore, listen to this podcast. Have I got the show for you? <laughs> okay, maybe don't give it to your creepiest coworker, but. Just the semi creepiest. You know. Only slight discomfort. You know who they are, you can tell. But yeah, so we're doing this. Um, Also, if you want to, please give us um, stars on iTunes. Um, Leave a comment or review, especially Mm -hmm. if you leave like little sweet comments. We will share them on here because we love that. We do love them. Last time I checked, we were five star reviewed on iTunes. Is that still correct? Still correct. Thank you. To everyone, uh, we are very proud of that record. So, and I recently found uh, out we're on um, Overcast, which is the platform that I listen to. Mm. Um, and then there's another one. I think it's called. Oof, I can't remember. I have to ask my brother. But... I did have some people tell me they used Overcast and ask for a specific link. So I believe that was in. Maybe the Shitterinos group. I think oh, that was maybe. in the Shitterinos. That's for fans of Shit's Creek and oh. also my favorite murder. I was like, what exactly is if that? If you don't watch Shit's Creek, watch it. It's amazing. 
So it's on my list. It is. It's really good. So I think it may have been people from there who got it on different places. I also found us on like a random list of psychology podcasts people can Dope. listen to. Um, it's really weird just stumbling upon your own podcast yeah. and things like, oh, hey, that's me. That's me in the apartment doing our thing. Yeah. But yeah, so we thank you guys. Um, and we're going to talk about something pretty interesting today. Mm-hmm. What are we going to talk about, Megan? Today we are going to talk about phobias. And this is an exciting episode. Also, bit of a scary episode since this is the last one that we have pre-prepared from our live show days. The pressure is on. So it's going to be all new from here on out. Um, 2020. Yeah, we do. That may mean that there might be some delays while we work out the kinks in this situation. But do the research. We're going to work on it for you guys. So, you know, if you have suggestions of what you want to hear about, let us know. That's exciting. Follow our face, like like our Facebook page if you don't. Spooky Psychology St. Charles. Find yes. us, like us. You can communicate with us through there. Yeah, and you can make friends. Like especially if you're in the Chicagoland area, you'll find people who are similar to you. Very cool people. It's a cool crew. You should all hang out and invite us if you want to. <laughs> We're setting you all up on playdates with each other. So you're welcome gonna be super great and not at all weird so yeah so we're gonna talk about phobias today so megan do you have any phobias that you'd like to share with the class well i don't know if it's technically a phobia we'll get into the criteria of phobias like more specifically in a couple minutes but i kind of do it just doesn't come up often enough that i know it would necessarily count because it impacts my life not that strongly but i am really afraid of like blood vessels and learning about the composition of blood so like in school when they were talking about it i almost threw up a couple times i have a very strong visceral reaction when people talk about like platelets and a bunch of other stuff it weirds me out i try not to think about the fact that i have blood vessels um it like grosses me out when you can see them like bulging through people's skin not because the people are gross nothing against people who have bulgy veins it just literally is like such a deep-seated visceral reaction to seeing them yeah that i like instantly get nauseous although i'm fine like getting my own blood drawn like it's not blood it's like blood vessels that's very interesting i mean i get it it is creepy it's very specific, too. So, yeah, how about you? You got any? I do. So, I'm someone who is pretty claustrophobic. Mm. And that means, in case you don't know, um, that I get extremely panicked in small spaces. And my whole thing with that is just, like, I'm, you know, not rationally, none of it's rational, but mm-hmm. I irrationally believe that, like, I'm going to run out of air. Um, And I think, honestly, like, when I think about it, that stems back to when I was younger and I had asthma. Okay. So I think it's it's related to that. And, you know, I've definitely had experiences where I've been in tight or enclosed spaces where I had to, like, straight up leave. Mm -hmm. So, 
Yeah, that's definitely mine. Okay. Interestingly enough, right before you got here, I was, as you so deftly observed, watching Criminal Minds. <laughs> and the episode before this one was about somebody who was claustrophilic, which means they were aroused by being in closed what? spaces. And I was watching it, and I'm like, this is Lauren's worst nightmare. I would die. They're truly. Like, I mean, nothing, if you're into it, as long as it's consensual, great. But... We support all your kinks, but that's one where I would straight up faint. You know, we I would like to add a caveat that we support your kinks so long as they're consensual and not harmful. Yeah. That's other than that, do what you will, people, but uh let it fly. Make sure if you are claustrophilic that your partner is not claustrophobic or you're just gonna end up having a bad time. <laughs> Not ideal. Not ideal no. at all. It is interesting, though, that the same things that are so deeply terrifying to some people are so deeply arousing to other people. Yeah. Like choking and all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. <laughs> I okay. just had to throw that out because it was just a timely episode. And I'm like, that's terrifying. But now I'm going to tell you, all of you lovely people... What is a phobia? So, looking at the diagnostics of the situation, we would diagnose somebody with a specific phobia. That's kind of how it is in the DSM-5. So, like, if Lauren went to a therapist to overcome her fear of enclosed spaces, they would not, like, document in her health insurance shit that she's claustrophobic. They would do it with a specific phobia. And the specific phobia is an unreal, reasonable, excessive fear. So it's persistent and intense fear triggered by a specific object or situation. And it's excessive. It doesn't match the actual threat from the situation. Interestingly enough, they recently removed the requirement that people acknowledge that it is excessive. So you no longer have to like acknowledge that it's irrational for it to be a phobia. Um, there's an immediate anxiety response out of proportion to the danger and it's instantaneously when presented with the object or situation yeah. which is like I was saying with my blood vessel thing seeing them, hearing about them, it's like an instant wave it's not something that i think about it's just like very quick and very uncontrollable the recognition that the fear is rational no longer required it used to be not anymore um which is great because sometimes you can't you don't know that it's irrational because the phobia is so deep-seated that you just cannot accept that it's not you know, that dangerous. So there's avoidance or extreme distress. So the person goes out of their way to avoid the object or situation, or they endure it with extreme distress. So that, that one, and then it's life-limiting. It impacts the sufferer's work, school, or personal life. That's why I don't know if mine would count as a phobia per mm. se. Um, just because it doesn't come up that often. Although, actually, I did used to want to be a nurse. And oh. this is a big reason why I'm not. So I, I guess in that case, it is avoidance. I wanted to be like a nurse or a midwife or something and I just I couldn't handle it I feel like there's a lot of things that I could handle but like having to draw blood from somebody is not something that I could not do like deal. it's too far for me yeah I feel like giving a shot would be fine it's like IVs and blood I can't do 
There's a six-month duration, so you have to have it for at least six months. It's not like a really quick thing. Um, and it's not caused by another disorder. There's lots of other disorders out there, and this, it has to be related to that. So if somebody has an extreme fear of an object that's a trigger related to trauma, that would not be a phobia. Right. That would be trauma-related. And um, social phobia is the only thing out there, like, it's... Social phobia or social anxiety is different, but that's kind of the one that does have its own diagnostic criteria other than it's specific phobia. So it would be like a specific phobia of, in my case, blood vessels. Right. Or a specific phobia of enclosed spaces. Yes. Not necessarily. All the other words are colloquial and fun and weird, but are not necessarily the what you would be diagnosed with. Correctamundo. Um, so a lot is still unknown about the actual cause of specific phobias, but there are a lot of theories based on research. So one theory is that phobias can develop from negative experiences. So, you know, as a result from having a negative experience or a panic attack related to a specific object or situation. So it's kind of tying that... Oh, there's an ambulance. There is an ambulance out there. Um, so, yeah. So just, you know, tying it to that situation. There is the genetics and environment factor. So there may be a link between your own specific phobia and the phobia or anxiety of your parents. So this could be due to genetics or just from learned behavior. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, I know, like, my mom was definitely, definitely afraid of mice and I never had any bad experiences with mice but growing up I just naturally became really creeped out by mice because I saw my mom's reaction mm -hmm. um so that's kind of a genetic tidbit yeah I kind of like some of the um nature versus nurture argument as it goes here because some people say that it's actually genetically passed down there's some evidence that um, trauma is genetically passed down and right. that people will have like similar reactions towards situations that a parent or a grandparent was in. Um, it's all kind of new research that's not clearly out there, but so some people say that the phobias are genetic. Some people say that it's what Lauren said, where you see your parent reacting. If you're a little kid and every time there's a mouse, your mom starts freaking out, you're going to learn, oh, hey, mice are really scary. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting because it's like it could be genetic. It could be environmental. As per all things nature versus nurture, it's probably a bit of probably both. A bit of both. It's yeah. like the answer to everything. It's yeah. both. And then the last one is brain function. So when you have changes in your brain function, that also can play a role in developing specific phobias. Mm. Um, so those are all the theories of how phobias could happen. I don't remember anything I said for this. <laughs> okay, That's so okay. it's different than fear. Um, fear, really, if you think about it, there's fight or flight. There's a lot of neural pathways involved with fear. I'm not gonna get into all the brain science behind it, quite frankly. I'm not all that good at remembering all of the different parts of the brain. I actually recently brought, um, like, brain... It's uh, Understanding the Brain, the Idiot's Guide to Ooh. assist me in all of this because I, I don't remember it all. But 
you know, kind of the evolutionary psychology explanation of fear is that it's kind of deeply wired to protect us from danger, right? right. When we're in situations that are genu genuinely dangerous, we do have that instant fear response. And if you think of a lot of fears, you know, they're... They make sense, right? Like being afraid of spiders and snakes and things that kill humans make sense. Being afraid of heights is a good adaptation to keep us from like wandering off of cliffs and stuff. Totally. It does make a lot of sense. But when it's different is when it's really negatively taking over your life. Like if you're extremely afraid of bears to the point where you're changing your work schedule or changing how you get places because of your fear of bears, despite the fact that you don't live anywhere near where a bear would live, that would be more in the phobia territory. Right. Versus if you're taking normal precautions because you live in the wood and there's bears there and you have a healthy fear of bears, you know, that's kind of the difference. Totally. So I will get into a little bit more information about fight or flight responses. Lauren will tell you how things actually work. <laughs> All right, so the response um, is actually trigger triggered by cortisol that's released when there is perceived danger, and cortisol is the stress hormone. Um, so then at that point, what happens is the sympathetic nervous system is activated, and when that becomes activated, it increases your heart rate, so it gets it moving in case you literally need to move, um, increases the blood pressure and your breathing rate, um, and it can take... 20 to 60 minutes for the body to get back to pre-arousal levels. So the whole point of fight or flight responses is it's meant to prime the body for action to be better prepared for threat, which makes a lot of sense. But this can be a problem for people when they perceive threats that are not actually dangerous. Because as you can see, it does a lot to the body and it mm -hmm. takes the body a while to restore itself and, you know, deal with the stress that was created. It does, and there's um, a lot of stuff you can kind of do, but stress long-term is not good for us. Cortisol and all of these things are very adaptive when there's real danger. Not as adaptive if you constantly have higher stress levels because of work right. or other things that aren't dangerous. So that is, I mean, your work might be dangerous, but in general, you know, speaking, it is interesting to see. Right. And there is, you know, that link between, you know, prolonged exposure to stress and things like autoimmune disorders mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Really makes you think, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, I think that's, and that's something that I like to tell people is you need to understand that, like, when you go into fight or flight, like, when you're really panicked about something, your body is always responding as if there is a bear about to murder you. It's yep. not like, oh, my boss might be a little mad at me. It's like, your brain does I'm not. It's, I'm gonna die. It's like, yeah. oh, I'm gonna die. That's why, you know, when you're having a panic attack, when you're that escalated, when you're going into fight or flight... There are things you have to do to get yourself out of it. And when it happens with phobias, the problem is, is it will happen with phobias, even though you're not in danger. And it does take a lot of work to kind of overcome that response and calm back down and actually get the stress out of your body. Absolutely. And that's why for a lot of people, like they don't, you know, 
they don't have a lot of knowledge about the nervous system. But it's so interesting, you know, for people when they learn that the opposite of fight or flight is rest and digest. That's why after we mm-hmm. get through something stressful, you know, we feel very tired or we want to eat and then go to sleep. And that's just kind of how the body restores itself. Mm. I love the phrase rest and digest. Don't you want to just rest and digest I right do. now? That sounds good. It sounds so great. Just like take a nap, eat some chicken fingers. That's it. That's what life's about. That's what life is about. I'm sorry. I'm very sleep deprived right now. So <laughs> I'm okay. trying my best here, everyone. Thank you, Gotham. I agree. <laughs> I support you. She is also sleep deprived. I don't know why. So let's go into some psychoanalytic theory, mainly because it's fun. Freud uh, is interesting. Freud, our good friend Freud, for those of you who don't know, Freud has been largely debunked on pretty much everything, <laughs> but, you know, he's still fun to talk about. He still likes to party. He's Freud likes to party too much, and it's a bit of a problem, <laughs> but... Um, you know, he's known as the father of modern psychology. Again, the very, like, debunked and kicked out of the family father of psychology. And he really thought that we had three stages of conscious. The id, the ego, and the superego. And the id is, like, the primal, instinctive part um, that focuses on primitive emotions, such as fear and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the superego is your higher conscience that's value judgments like is this good or bad and the concept of guilt and then the ego is the rational moderator between the two so it's trying to balance your instinctual drives that you have Mm -hmm. um isn't there a really dumb joke about it the four f's fighting yeah it's It's like like food fighting Mm -hmm. and the last one's like Fornication. Fornication. That that's like every Psych 101 professor's favorite joke. I've even seen it in textbooks now. It's. I would love to be a Psych 101 professor because I'd be like, fucking. I actually have had some (laughs) teachers do that in like higher up classes, and they're like, and last but not least, fucking, because they're expecting you're expecting them to say fornication, and they're like, that's right, I just said the F word. Fuck the system. I'm an edgy and cool (laughs) teacher. Make a movie about me. Anyways, not important. I am Robin Williams. I'm getting on a desk. (laughs) Uh, Man, I actually, my high school psychology teacher did an optical illusions day, um, where he just did hundreds of optical illusions on the the projector, like the old school overhead oh, cool. projectors in slides. Except what it basically was was fifty five minutes of him just like frantically fleeing stuff off of it, and then he got on a chair and did a headstand at the end of it. It was one I'm of deeply concerned. <laughs> anybody else who had him is all like. Yes, on the off chance anybody listening to it had him knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, that's what happens when you try to be a cool teacher, is you just look you insane. look a little manic. Yeah. Super manic. Um, but anyways, um, so Freud would say that phobias are based on the anxiety reactions of the id that are repressed by the ego. So, like, the currently 
feared object is not the original subject of the fear. That's very psychoanalytical, is the whole, like, it's always something deeper. We must go in, and this represents how you wish your mother was here, or something. So it's, you know... I actually, there are still some working psychoanalysts in the United States, which I find very interesting because it's too. not co- as common anymore. But that's kind of the whole like, it's all deeper on our base urges, even if like what you're afraid of is Twinkies. Afraid of something else. AKA penises. <laughs> that would actually be fr- very Freud would just, if you're afraid of Twinkies. Of course, I went with something phallic. Freud would just be like, "Interesting, you all chose because that. you wish you had a penis, <laughs> and that's where it's coming from." Anywho, <laughs> uh, we're gonna talk about learning theory now. Yeah. Uh, so that's based on principles of behaviorism and cognitive theory. Um, those are both used very commonly nowadays and nowadays in therapy. Um, so Ivan Pavlov pioneered the learning theory by showing that dog could be trained to salivate when a bell was rung. So we've all kind of heard that. I and think we talked about Pavlov last week in our, or last time in our Christmas episode. Pavlov making an appearance again. I'm Pavlov walking down the street. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, this episode is brought to you by weird songs that we make up. You're about welcome. psychologists. Um, anyway. <laughs> I was also thinking about, I think we, I can't remember which episode it was. We were talking about B.F. Skinner. Like, what is the F stand for? Best Friend Skinner. Skinner. I think that was the Christmas episode. Was it? Too. Okay. I think so. Are you, like, very brain foggy right now? Because oh, I am super brain foggy right now. We're going to roll through it. It's going to be good. This is just the side effects of our illness. <laughs> Anywho. All right. So, we got Pavlov's dogs. Pavlov's. No Okay, according to learning theory, phobias develop when fear responses are reinforced or punished. So both reinforcement and punishment can be positive or negative. So positive reinforcement is the presentation of something positive, such as a parent rewarding a child for staying away from a snake. Positive punishment is the presentation of something negative or unfavorable to prevent that behavior from occurring again, such as a child being bitten by a snake, um, because they're getting that punishment. Um, so I remember being in like a psych 101 class and finding this like really confusing, where I was like, how is it positive? But it's not positive in the sense that it's good, it's positive in that you're gaining something, mm-hmm. and what you're gaining is a punishment. Yeah, basically, and it that stands for a lot of psychology stuff, like for schizophrenia, you'll hear there's positive symptoms and negative symptoms. Positive right. just means you have something, negative means you don't have something. It's not... You're either gaining emotional. or losing. It's not like a value judgment, positive or negative thing. That confused me for so long. It's almost like a statistics kind of yeah. positive and negative. Mm-hmm. So. It's just one of those things where it's, we gotta sound smart. We're trying our best. So. I meant like the psychology field. <laughs> not us. <laughs> Just gonna end up cutting out a bunch of weird shit that we keep saying, and then this is gonna be like the most boring episode where we're just like, and that is phobias. We're done with class today. K 
kids. You all get credit. Thank you for sitting through this. I just realized also in my intro, I said that social phobia was the only one. There's also agoraphobia. That's a separate illness as well. So True. I forgot. I'm sorry. I did forget about agoraphobia. That is also a phobia that's kind of an off branch on its own thing. So, now, for all you people in your Psych 101 classes, we're going to talk about the medical model of psychology. states that mental disorders are caused by physiological factors. So, I mean, that's kind of, if you look, there's lots of theories. The medical model is a pretty big one right now. It focuses on neuropsych which is dedicated to the structure and function of the brain. Neuropsych, as you may have guessed, is not my strong suit on the basis of my Idiot's Guide to the Brain book that I do reference quite a bit. Um, But I'm not a neuropsychologist, so that's fine, right? But they've identified certain genetic factors that may play a role in the development of phobias, although the research is still in its early phases. Certain medications can be helpful for treating phobias, but the treatments are intended to relieve anxiety by increasing the levels of a chemical called serotonin. So, I mean, basically, like, anxiety medication can be beneficial for phobias. It just kind of depends on the specifics. But that's how they work in that reduction of anxiety. Yes. So, yes, Megan, that was... Quite interesting. <laughs> and you were totally here the whole time. The whole time. Um, anyway, so I wanted to get into common phobia categories. Ooh. Um, so there are some common ones. So the first one is situations. Um, so that might be something like um, being in an airplane, being in enclosed spaces, or going to school. Um, nature, such as thunderstorms or heights animals or insects, such as dogs or spiders, blood injection or injury, such as needles, accidents, or medical procedures, and then others, um, which is kind of, some examples of them are choking, vomiting, loud noises, or clowns. Yeah. I love the other category. It's just like we're anything else. Under the sun. Lots of different ones. And there's lots of different ones. I believe that phobias are actually the most common mental illness so they are pretty common there are quite a lot of them yeah i think i'll cover that down in the slide entitled some interesting phobia shit perfect i'm great at naming things okay so treatments of phobias there are lots of different ways that you can treat phobias so here's a few if anyone out there is like I have a phobia I'd like to treat. I wonder what types of things a therapist might do or what I might want to look for. So there is exposure therapy. And exposure therapy is basically exactly like it sounds. It's exposing yourself to the thing that you're afraid of with a therapist, either, you know, there physically or helping you plan it in some sort of controlled environment-ish. So... Exposure therapy in and of itself is used in lots of different types of therapies. Sometimes there's an exposure hierarchy where you come up with like the least distressing to the most distressing and build a plan. And then there's something called flooding. 
And flooding is when you basically just teach skills and ways to manage it and then put the person with the phobia in their worst case scenario with that phobia mm -hmm. until they're no longer afraid of it. The general principle is that eventually the fear response will stop and you can use your skills and get through it. So sometimes it's very intensely doing things going to the worst case scenario. I don't do flooding. I will do exposure to a certain extent. I mm. use exposure hierarchies, not flooding. And also the issue with exposure therapy is there are some situations where you just can't use it for. Like obviously if somebody has a phobia of drowning, you're not going to drown them. Right. But you could do exposures in various types of water. There are lots of things you could do, but sometimes you can't replicate the specific fear. Like, I guess if uh, ah, they were going to flood my fear of blood vessels, they would probably have me, like, watch them doing open heart surgery oh, on someone. That would probably be, like, worst case scenario for fear. Yeah. Or, like, going to a lecture about the aorta. That would freak me out endlessly. So, yeah. like, that, those would be types of things. Like, making me watch surgery videos or other things. Why are you doing this? <laughs> Ugh. Yeah, that would be terrible. <laughs> that would be awful. I mean, again, it doesn't come up that often, so right now it's just, uh... Just it is what it is. Yeah. yeah. Another one is counter-conditioning. So there's a couple steps to this. Um, so it's changing your response to stimuli through conditioning. Um, and what you're conditioning them to do is use relaxation techniques. So the first step is systematic desensitization. Mm -hmm. So learning how to apply relaxation techniques based on um, certain triggers. And then the second step is an anxiety hierarchy um, that Megan was talking about. So basically, um, you know, fears are ranked on how much it elicits the fear. So for example, um, you know, for like social anxiety folks I've used um an anxiety hierarchy before where we kind of list okay on a scale from zero to ten you know what would like a one look like related to your social phobia and that might be like raising your hand and answering a question in class and it might you know be several different things all the way up to the last thing which is 10 usually mm -hmm. and then a 10 is okay actually doing like a presentation in front of a group of people mm -hmm. and it's you know consciously working through each of the steps of the hierarchy and being able to use the coping skills that you're taught in therapy mm -hmm. exactly and also i mean the interesting thing particularly with that is like when you're doing any type so, as you can see, really a lot of the treatment involves exposure to some level. Okay. It just mm -hmm. depends. The last one is what I do, which is cognitive behavioral therapy. But I also do exposure. I do both. Usually in combined, I do something called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy when I'm working with a child or teen with trauma. Then you highly use both. So for phobia, social phobia, I'll do a touch of both as well. Um, and cognitive behavioral therapy, the basic theoretical leaning is that you're, you, you know, you are in a situation, you have a thought, your thought impacts your feelings, and your feelings impact your actions. So, in psychology, if you remember to your Psych 101 class, everyone, because I'm assuming most of us have taken one, mm -hmm. you get 
that there's different theoretical leanings and some people think that your thoughts come first some people think your feelings come first it just depends on the research and the therapy you're doing in cbt it's your thoughts first then your feelings which makes sense if you're thinking of you know for example you were talking about your claustrophobia and you thinking that you're going to run out of oxygen which would then cause anxiety Mm -hmm. sort of feelings right so in that we would work to reframe thoughts um so that would be things like in situations where you would probably use that with an exposure and then you would reframe your thoughts and work on that after a lot of preparation of there is plenty of oxygen even though it feels like there's not i am okay um and those types of things to counteract those thoughts and actually work to change those thoughts and i think um The interesting thing is anxiety hierarchies tend to look really different than people think they do. Yeah. I I know I've done some very interesting ones, but it's cool because, like, you really get to work with your therapist to, like, prepare for it. Mm -hmm. So for social anxiety, it might just be like, okay, we're going to pick a person and you're going to go say hi to them Mm -hmm. at school this week. You're just going to talk to them. You're going to make small talk with this person that sits next to you. But then you can pick the person and you can talk about what are things that people talk about at school. You can kind of like do it and then be like, what skills can you use to do this? And then people generally realize like, oh, I was able to talk to somebody and it did like nothing bad happened. It was okay. So you get to like prepare for it and have the skills to do it and like face your fears, which is cool. Yeah. Okay. So now um, some just examples in the media because it's kind of fun to talk about so unlike some episodes where we each pick a story and go in depth we're really not going to do that here we're just going to talk about some random stuff and uh twilight zone which i've recently started watching which is great has an episode the nightmare at twenty thousand feet Mm -hmm. um so it is actually i'd say a pretty good depiction of anxiety right it's somebody who's very afraid of planes um spoiler alert there actually is a gremlin so he has a pair of airplanes he goes on he's just been in some sort of treatment center because this was a long time ago where Mm -hmm. you know you have a i think the him and his wife keep talking about how like he had an incident or something it was very vague and was in the hospital for a while right but like that's how it used to be where Mm -hmm. it's just like oh you had an outburst now you're gonna stay at this facility for like six months or something anyways so he was there he was afraid of planes he had an instant response as soon as he got on the plane you'll Mm -hmm. see that where it's like instantly like sweaty his heart's racing he's talking to himself he's trying to calm himself down Um, I mean, in that case, his fear was, I'd say, on par with the actual threat of the situation because there was an actual gremlin ripping apart the plane. That's the plot twist. That's the plot twist, but it is Twilight Zone. There's always a plot list, Mm -hmm. but plot twist. But, I mean, in all actuality, it did fit within Mm -hmm. what a phobia actually looks like. Um, Monk is a big one Mm -hmm. for those of you who've seen monk he's a detective who has obsessive compulsive disorder and lots and lots of phobias which just makes sense ocd and specific phobias have a comorbidity of 22 percent so there is some overlap there it can be a little bit difficult to tease out what is the ocd and what is the phobia um because again the clinician to diagnose both of those things would have to work at figuring it out um 
because that criteria that it can't be caused by another mental illness. So it's difficult to tease out, but they absolutely can exist. So he has he's afraid of everything, like literally everything, and then also has OCD and doesn't like touch hands and things, mm -hmm. and it's very neat in his environment. So, I mean, obviously, I think it is perhaps a bit over the top at times. I haven't watched the show in a long time. I watched it when I was younger. Um, but, you know, that is one where you see it. Another one, Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. They say he has multiple phobias, birds, germs, and public bathrooms. Uh, yeah, I think his is very overdramatic. Yeah. I think, have you watched Big Bang Theory at all? I've only seen a couple episodes, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, again, he's got some unknown psychopathology that they allude to, but never really to. I did not watch the whole series, so maybe they go into it more. But his, I think, at times, are played for laughs quite a bit. It's, right. it's like, more of a comical thing, so it's not the most accurate portrayal of what a phobia is. But there are certain things, like, he is afraid of public bathrooms, so he never uses them. He'll go home to use the bathroom. So that is something that you will see with people with that phobia. So I think in all of the media representations, like these three that I'm talking about, there's definitely touch points of accuracy but as it always is in the media with mental illness, take right. it with a grain of salt. They often embellish. embellish because it's for entertainment, not for accurate representation of it. Exactly. Um, and then I wanted to talk a little bit about phobias just in the media and in culture. Um, so there's, there's really common ones that we hear about a lot. One is skipping the 13th floor. So if you've ever been in a building, you know, you'll notice there usually is not a 13th floor, even though, like, there literally has to be There objectively <laughs> speaking is a 13th floor. They yeah. just call it the 14th floor. Exactly. So that's kind of an interesting one. Um, and that obviously is related to, um, you know, fear of, like, bad luck and things like that. So that might be considered, like, an other category. There's, like, yeah, and, I mean, these are all common superstitions that definitely can be full-blown phobias, depending right. on the person and the specifics. Um, another is killer clowns. We were hearing about that in the media we a ton. We were. Everybody remember those clowns. We did have one person who came that actually did have a real clown experience. Yep. So... I guess that there were actually some clowns in 2016. We have verified with one person. We have confirmation from the outside. Um, so, so killer clowns. So obviously there is a bunch of movies about that. So we mm -hmm. have like it. Um, uh, my personal favorite, killer clowns from outer space. Good one. It's great. The tagline is killer clowns from outer space. Holy shit. And they say it like seven times during the movie. Uh, another one is um, snakes. So there are a lot of snake movies. Like there's like Anaconda mm -hmm. and um, snakes on a plane. Because <laughs> that's combining two phobias. I love snakes on a plane. I've never seen You've it. You've never uh -uh. seen it. We need to watch it. Okay. It is a masterpiece. Okay. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's good, mm -hmm. but I love it. Okay, I understand. Uh, spiders, I believe there is a movie actually called Arachnophobia. There is a movie, Arachnophobia. Um, blood, 
you know, you'll you'll see that in um, different horror movies and stuff like that. Dogs, got mm-hmm. Cujo. Oh, Cujo. Um, I know there's other movies I can't think right there's now. There's so, it's such a popular thing. But even then, like, in those movies, typically, it's displaying things that will cause issues for people with the phobia. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the movie is, are often not, like, a good representation of a phobia. Because the fear is 100% spot on. Cujo is right. an evil dog. Like, Or just, like... You know, if, like, a dog gets, like, rabies. Right. Like, that's valid why you would be afraid that's of them. That's super valid in killer clowns from outer space. They are killer clowns. They're literally murdering people and drinking them with silly straws. So, like, yeah. that fear's spot on. Absolutely. A lot of people, you know, are fearful of the dark, and that's definitely capitalized in a lot of movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they use that. And I'll kind of get into this in the moment. Um, in you know haunted houses, using Ooh. that you know awareness to play into situations. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you afraid of the dark at all? I was when I was younger, but as an adult. No. Okay. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. Not like phobia level, but I can't sleep if it's a hundred percent dark. Oh. Like I need to have like a nightlight in the hallway if I have to get up or something. Not like I'm an adult and I need a nightlight, but it's like it's just like if I have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or something, I need to be able to see. I can't like Yeah. I'm I feel just, like that makes sense. Yeah, so it's like I need a little bit of ambient light and noise to be able to sleep. I can't sleep in pitch black. I don't know why I've never been able to. Yeah. I don't think I've ever, I ever have, just because I usually have, like, the TV on. Oh, yeah, we sleep with the TV on, too. (laughs) But it soothes me. Isn't it? I love it when, like, I'm trying to tell clients healthy sleep habits. And I'm like, don't sleep with the TV on. And they're like, do you sleep with the TV on? And I'm like, do what I say, not as I do. She's a bullshit parent, and I don't really say that to clients, but yeah, I do sleep with Listen it. Listen to the loving, lo- you know, lulls of the office playing. Yeah, because we, like, sometimes it's a TV show, sometimes Amazon, if you're a Prime member, Prime TV, they do actually have something called the Sleep Well channel, oh, where they nice. have free, like, 10-hour ambient noise low-light videos, so there's, like, thunderstorms, so I'll sleep I with the no thunderstorm idea. one a lot. Because it's, like, a little bit of noise and light, but it's not, like, blinding. Because, again, like, I can't sleep in a perfectly light room. Right. I just, I, like, I, even since I was, like, a toddler, I've just never been able to sleep with it fully dark. And I don't even know if it's a fear thing. I just can't, I don't know. Just, like, maybe you're more comfortable. Yeah. A little light. Yeah. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Oh, so the other thing I wanted to talk about is haunted houses Mm -hmm. and how they're using phobia rooms. So I've definitely heard of haunted houses, um, like especially like Statesville, Mm -hmm. where they have like a claustrophobia room where they have you like lay down in like a ball pit situation and get covered with like ball pit balls. Mm. Or they'll put you in a clown room that, you know, is filled with clowns or, you know, stuff like that. So... I know in our live event, we kind of talked, like, with the audience about, you know, this premise of using phobia rooms, you know, for entertainment purposes, um, but also, like, kind of wondering, like, as a therapist, would you ever 
have your client go into a haunted house phobia room for exposure therapy? No, I would not. (laughs) Um, I don't think I would either. I just, you know, I don't, I get the purpose of having the phobia rooms. I think that they are perfect. It's like, I'm sure people who have like a discomfort with clowns are fine in the clowns room. It's like uncomfortable where it's like a, that amount of fear that you're yeah. looking for. But I would not use a haunted house phobia room as a therapeutic exposure tool. I think if a client really wanted to go when they were done, I wouldn't tell them not to. Right. But I had a very negative experience in a haunted house with somebody who took scaring people way too far. Mm. And I think that would be my issue with using it as a therapeutic modality is I guess like if you knew the people running the haunted house and it was like a special limited run like training and they you had consent signed for like everyone there and were able to do it like in a controlled setting, but I feel like a straight-up haunted house, like, you don't have that therapeutic control. They don't have what you usually have in exposure therapy, which is a threshold limit of when you get to stop, and that might not be able to happen in a haunted house setting. It's going to take a while to get you out. Um, That control factor. That's a really good Yeah, the control factor just isn't there, and ultimately, like, you don't know if... The st- and I'm not, I have nothing against staff in haunted houses. I don't think they're all like creepy or anything, but you don't know if they can tell the difference between like fear that they find kind of funny to scare people or like genuinely somebody having a panic attack. Like, I just think they like, they don't have that training. There's no way for them to know. And so they might take things too far and right. not realize that that's what they're doing. And I go back to when we had our live event for the podcast launch and we had Sean who actually ran a haunted house as our special guest and we interviewed him. And from what he told me, a lot of times the people that they're hiring are just volunteers from Mm -hmm. like off the street. Like it's not like they have any sort of training on how to support people should there be a panic attack. Right. And I don't think they necessarily need to. You know, I think that... They have training, and I think they do some levels of screening. Really depends on the haunted house that you're going to. Right. It's just, it's not... It's not... It's not therapy. It's not, you know, like, I could see doing, like, a haunted house-type, like, walkthrough during the day Mm -hmm. if there was ever a way to do it. Could be, especially if somebody had a phobia of haunted houses, then, like, that could be completely appropriate but only if you have control. Not just like, yeah, go with your friends to Statesville and just like, like launch let's... into it. Yeah. Because ultimately with exposure therapy, if you go too far, if the person's not able to handle it, if it's done inappropriately, then it's going to set back their progress. Right. It creates that new neural pathway mm-hmm. of this isn't safe. Yeah. Because, I mean, really the whole point of it is it kind of has to do with the fact that when we remember things, we remember the last time we remembered it, not when it actually happened. So when you're able to do exposure therapy and do this, then the person will remember the last time they were there and it wasn't scary. And that's kind of what helps them get through it. Totally. So if you're doing that and then they have a really negative experience, it's like you're, it's not... It could be it could be too big of a setback. Setbacks do happen, but that could be too significant because you can't control what's going to happen at all. 
And, you know, with kind of like the extreme haunted houses that like we're hearing about nowadays too, I know that some people, like I've seen online, like in YouTube videos and stuff, there are people that have sought them out as a form of therapy, like in a twisted mm-hmm. way where they go into it thinking like, if I can get through this, I can get past my trauma or my mm-hmm. addiction or my fears. And I just don't think that's a responsible thing to do. I think that that's not something that most therapists would recommend. Right. Like, people do a lot of things that they think are therapy and they think are going to help. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. It's just like self-help books. Like, sometimes they're very beneficial. There's some that I've read that I've really liked and have recommended to others. And there are some that are just like, if you just wake up every morning and say, I need money, the universe will give you money. Like, it's just, you have to take it all with a grain of salt. And so sometimes, like, I don't know if doing an extreme haunted house would help someone. Theoretically, it might. It's too, I, it's too risky, though. Yeah. I think, like, using it as exposure therapy is way too risky especially if you're someone who's just trying to start there it might backfire pretty significantly well and i also like wonder too like you know i'll ask you but obviously i want to ask like our listeners too and they can weigh in on the facebook page or whatever like how do you feel about i guess people capitalizing off of people's fears and like using phobia rooms for money um Like, do you feel like it's sinister or not that sinister? I guess I would say I feel conflicted about it. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing is, is that ultimately it's entertainment and it's entertainment that you can freely choose if you want to consume or not. Right. Um, I mean, I think calling a, like, it's like people calling a phobia room a phobia room. It's they're doing it for the colloquial phobia, not the actual diagnosis. And I think that's the distinction that I like to make with a lot of things. It's yeah. like, again, like when you see someone on TV and it's just like, oh, they have this mental illness. They have this disorder. You can look and see, like, did they actually consult with mental health professionals right. before they made this case, or did they just do it? I think, you know, phobias and mental illness in general are portrayed constantly, and people do monetize about it, and, you know, I don't, I guess since, like, I don't have a phobia, I don't know, like, I don't, mine is a deep fear, I don't know if it's a phobia, but, like, So I can't say from experience if it would bother me or not if they're doing it. I've conflicted probably. How do you feel about it? I think it's one of those things where I would want to know ahead of time. So for example, like if I went to Statesville and I was like, oh cool, like I'm going to go to this haunted house and I didn't know there was like a claustrophobia room, Mm -hmm. that would be mortifying for me. So I think it's just one of those things where it's like, if you give people the choice, that's okay. But mm-hmm. if you kind of spring it on people, I don't know about that. Yeah, I and I think that's the fair point. Like again, like with the movies and stuff, if you have arachnophobia, you probably know to not watch the movie Arachnophobia. Oh, right. Like you can make that choice. Haunted houses. I mean, I would venture to guess a lot of people with severe phobias probably just don't go to haunted houses. I don't know. Again, I guess it would depend on how obscure your phobia actually is right if you would go or not um 
Yeah, I think there, I think you should know beforehand. I think it's important to have some transparency. Um, or I know some haunted houses will have like a safe word that you can yell if you need to leave immediately, mm, which yeah. I think is an important thing because again, you know, haunted houses are supposed to be fun and light and scary, and they get your adrenaline going, which can be like kind of a fun experience, yeah. just like roller coasters, but. You need to have an out, because for some people, it could be genuinely really damaging. Absolutely. So, with that, um, let's get into some interesting phobia shit. Some interesting phobia shit. So, approximately 10% of the U.S. adult population has a specific phobia. So it is really, really common. Um, I mean, obviously 10% isn't like a super high number, but as far as mental illnesses go, that's pretty high. So it's the most common mental illness. Um, Most begin in early childhood, and you're unlikely to gain phobias after the age of 30. So we've got that to look forward to when we turn 30. Um, I won't be afraid of anything. In a year and a half, it'll be like I'm safe as far as phobias go. Um, There are some mental illnesses that pretty much once you hit a certain age, you're good. Yep. So this is one of them. If you're 30 or above and you have a phobia, you can rest assured that you're unlikely to get another one. That's probably just the one that you have. Um, Or if you don't have any, congratulations. You're probably not going to get one. That's super cool. Good for you. So, that's kind of fun. So, I have a year and a half to see if any phobias are going to develop. There we go. Yeah. Um, actually, I guess under a year and a half now. Anyways, it's not a, my age is not super important. It's important to me. Thank you. You've got, like, a year almost exactly, right? Yeah. Are you about to turn 29? Mm-hmm. In... Five days, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, I remembered your birthday. I'm very proud of myself right now. Um, So arachnophobia is the fear of spiders and other arachnids. Um, They say, and this is a thing, right? So now we're going into like some of the names for the phobias. This is not really specific phobia based. I was saying one in three women and one in four men. In that case, usually when people are saying, I have arachnophobia, they're scared of spiders. They probably don't have the actual phobia, though. Not Given that only 10% of the adult population has a diagnosed specific phobia, it's unlikely that one in three women and one in four men have a specific phobia of spiders that would meet the qualifications. So again, a lot of these names, it's colloquial. It's not necessarily research-based or psychology-based, but it's kind of fun so we can talk about it anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, Aphidophobia is the fear of snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that often attributed to evolutionary psychology, personal experiences, or cultural influences. Obviously, if you live somewhere near poisonous snakes, it's good to be afraid of snakes. It's good to instill a fear of snakes into your yeah. children. Like, no, don't touch those, Get in, or whatever. Um, acrophobia is the fear of heights. I have that as well. I am actually, I do. Yeah, I am like, I don't think I'm an overly fearful person because again, like I'm afraid of a lot of things, but they're like lower level fears. Like it's not like I'm 
you know, it's avoiding like a bunch of life. stuff. It's not really impairing my life. There's just a lot of things that kind of give me the heebie-jeebies mm-hmm. pretty strongly. Um, then again, aerophobia, fear of flying. I also have that. Um, I think um, I was there with you for your first flight. For my first flight ever, yeah. Lauren was there, and I, like, death gripped her hand. <laughs> so. And we're alive. We made it through. We made it through. I'm pretty sure, given how long it's been, my nails are no longer imprinted in your arm. Mm-hmm. So thank you for letting me do that. We did that exposure together. But yeah, I've actually only flown four times, which, again, I think is why I'm afraid of flying, because I've done it so... Infrequently. Infrequently. It's yeah. very unfamiliar to me. It's very scary. Um, but, you know, we decided to go to Colorado and I didn't, like, hesitate to go because of my fear. And that's why it's not a phobia. Like, I'm uncomfortable with it, but I'll still do it. I'm uncomfortable with heights. I'll still go hiking. There's just certain things that I won't do, but they're right. not like impacting my life like i'm not gonna go on the sky deck that's just a hundred percent not happening but that is not impacting my life at all that i won't go i wouldn't go skydiving again i think that's those are pretty normal things to avoid it's not like my life is job related or family related at all no um and even the interesting thing with the fear of flying is a lot of people have it airplane accidents are very uncommon and actually most People in an airplane accident tend to survive. Most of them mm-hmm. happen on takeoff or landing, and usually you're fine. So, again, the fear is not... It's outweighing how dangerous it actually is. Um, nomophobia is the fear of being without your mobile phone. I have this. Everybody <laughs> has this, or being unable to use your phone for some reason, such as the absence of a signal. I like to say running out of minutes, as if that's a thing. I guess if you have, like, a pay-as-you-go phone. I feel like that's not as common anymore. Well, even the pay-as-you-go phones, typically they go based on data, not minutes. Right. Right? Like, we've kind of changed away from that. I guess I don't want to be like, oh, we're all past that, because I know, like, obviously some places may not be, but mostly right. we I go based... about other countries at all. Mostly it seems like our phone contracts, even the pay-as-you-go phones from, like, Walmart, tends to be, like, you pay for the month. And then some data. I don't think it actually goes off of minutes anymore. Um, But, yeah, a lot of people are very uncomfortable when they're away from their phones. I think we all are now. Like, we're... It's like that instant, like, something bad's gonna happen and I'm not gonna be able to call for help. Even though, like, people handled this for a long time. And everybody around you has a cell phone. So, like, even if yours doesn't work, Mm -hmm. in an emergency... Anybody near you could call 911. It's true. It's true. Um, A few unique phobias. So one is anatidaphobia. And it's a person suffering from this condition feels that someone in the world, or somewhere in the world, a duck or a goose is watching him or her. Mm. Not attacking or touching, simply watching. And this one, I think, actually originated in a comic strip was the first time it was used. Really? Yeah. So it's unclear if anybody actually has it. Yeah. So that's kind of an interesting one because I'd imagine, I mean, 
phobias are so specific that like i'm sure somebody has it yeah um but yeah that was i forget which um i think it was it might have been a gary larson comic hmm. i don't know I, let me check while you check that i will read this next one so the next one is colorphobia or fear of clowns so actually back in 1919 freud popularized um, the term uncanny as a reason for fear. So he described uncanny as something that is both familiar and unfamiliar at the same time. So an example is a very lifelike robot. It may be able to do things like smile, blink, or look at a person, but you're able to see subtle differences in their eyes, their movements, their speech, um, and that creates uneasiness. That's why it explains why people are creeped out by dolls, zombies, and other human-like things. Yeah, and I definitely think we should go more into this in a future episode, maybe. Yeah. And I have confirmed that it is indeed a Far Side by Gary Larson comic. Perfect. So, I mean, still, very valid weird phobia I'm sure someone has. Like, it had to come from somewhere, right? Absolutely. Um, another one is arachibateriophobia. <laughs> I don't know how to say that. Um, but it's the fear of peanut butter sticking to the roof of the mouth. Mm. It's kind of interesting. Um, tripophobia. This is a condition where a person experiences a fear to clusters of small holes. Um, I've heard of a lot of people actually. Yeah, this. this is a really common one. And I don't actually know if it's like super common or if it's just that enough like memes have been made that people are starting to develop it you know what i mean like right it's and... talked about so much just like the clowns in 2016 it was talked about a bunch mm -hmm. and a lot of people became afraid of clowns i've seen a lot with this in the last few years which could be impacting it because if you keep seeing pictures it's eventually gonna freak you out it's a little freaky it is a little freaky and i was trying to understand like why it's creepy and like why it makes people uncomfortable so i did some research and actually tom kupfer at the university of kent and university of essex shared um, some research about it in the journal of cognition and emotion hmm. and according to their research um Trypophobia evolved as a way to avoid infectious disease. So it kind of goes okay. back to the evolutionary perspective. Um, so thousands of years ago, if you saw a person covered in boils or a body covered in flies, a natural aversion to the site would have helped you to avoid catching whatever they had. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So those are a few cool ones. But we wanted to uh, take some time for Reddit stories time. <laughs> Reddit stories. We combed the pages <laughs> of Reddit to find some weird phobia stories to share with you. Yeah. And that's what we're going to do. And again, we're not saying any of these people have diagnosable phobias. This is the more colloquial phobia, not the diagnosis. But for the sake of fun, we will discuss. Please. Let me go first? Yeah, go for it. Okay, first Reddit story. Fear of shoes? Question mark. Since I can remember, I've been afraid of seeing pairs of shoes flip the wrong way. Like the left one on the right side and the one on the right side on the left. I freak out and have to go fix them no matter where I am. I don't know why. Something in my brain screams bad and my stomach crumples up whenever I see them. That's interesting. 
That is really interesting. Again, don't know. Like, that could also... That could be an OCD thing. If the person has OCD, that would not be, like, uncommon. That's just, like, bad, wrong type of thing. Interesting. Yeah. Next one. This is by Vanko. Um, Brace yourselves, gang. This one's weird. You know how when a wind chime is blowing around on a really windy day and the chimes (laughs) are flinging around and all the strings are all tangled and everything... I can't stand watching that. It gives me the willies. I pictured it in my head as I typed this and shivered. <laughs> Again, we're not laughing at you, person who has this no. fear. But it's like, I get it. Cause like, it is wind, unsettling. Wind chimes can be unsettling. They can be lovely or creepy. And or it's always... Like, doom. Yeah, I feel like wind chimes, I'm always either like really happy or really unhappy to hear them. Like, I'm never just neutral about wind chimes. You can't be neutral about wind chimes. You just can't. You should put that on a shirt. You can't be neutral about wind chimes. Wind chimes. Um, Next, birds in general. I can look at birds from a distance and be fine. Try putting one near me, however. No, 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 no. Also, large catfish freak me out for some reason. Too damn large. You know, (laughs) I don't like birds. No? I'm fine with them. Like, I like the fact that they exist. I'm okay with them as long as they're nowhere near my face. Um, So I can get that. Birds close to me. Also, butterflies, moths, any fluttering insect near my face. I wasn't kidding. I'm, like, afraid of a lot of things, but it's all, like, very minor fears. So instead of having, like, one really big one, I just have a lot of little ones. A lot of, a lot of examples. Um, yeah, so this one is saying, my sister is de- af- deathly afraid of dead birds. Mm-hmm. She thinks they're going to suddenly come back <laughs> to life and fly at her. We've never been able to figure out where that came from. Uh, then Pigeon Facts chimed in. I can confirm this happens. Trust me, I'm an expert. Um, you know the funny Reddit. thing is that... I know, I do too. There are so many superstitions about birds that, like, nothing with birds surprises me. Like, there's a lot of, um... Like, if a bird flies into your window and dies, it means that someone in your family's gonna die. Like, someone in the house... Or, like, seeing a dead bird. Like, there are a lot of cultural superstitions involving dead birds. So, like, people thinking dead birds are going to come back to life really doesn't surprise me. I I get it. Thinking that you a dead bird is going to come back to life and fly directly at you. Maybe you saw birds as a child and it it stuck with you. Um, Okay. Nuns give me anxiety. Started as a kid. You'd see... The films of the orphanages, and they would abuse the kids, see them in town, frail women, always thought of them as shady. Over the years, it kind of manifested itself into fear. Being around them makes me feel breathless and shaky. Like I'm, said, like, I'm a 6'2", 28-year-old male. There's no reasonable explanation for it. Also, that fucking horror movie that came out recently, she's been a feature of recurring nightmares, like, once a week. Terrifying. That does sound like a legit phobia. That probably. does. That may be a legit phobia. Um, again, we can't diagnose any of these people based on their Reddit presence. Um, I've diagnosed you through Reddit. Please see me. Through Reddit. Although, a lot of people on Reddit need therapy. All I'm saying, I don't know if you guys are on Reddit, but there's a lot happening. Uh, wax museums. I went to my first, my first and last one. I like that 
Saturn soda is so definitive that like I Saturn went to soda. Saturn soda. The King Cornish was on. I don't know if we should be saying it, but I guess they it's put this fun. on Reddit. Yeah. So like you, you put it out there. Uh, I went to my first and last one when I was about 13 years old. It was a Madame Tussauds in San Francisco. And Madame Tussauds is like the good wax museum. That's, That's like peak wax museum. I walked down the stairs, and to my horror, there was Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet holding each other for all eternity. I couldn't stop crying, (laughs) screaming, and shaking. It was so embarrassing and terrifying. I also have a fear of mannequins. So wax museums are terrifying. It's that uncanny thing again. It's, It's the uncanny valley. Across the board, I have never seen a wax figure that didn't disturb me to my soul. Yep. Did I, um, I showed you we went to our wedding cake tasting, mm-hmm. which was lovely, except for the fact that the town was decorated for Christmas, oh, yeah. and it had, like, all of these weird, creepy, like, wax old statues you of, like, people. Yeah, I'll put it on the Facebook page where it was, like, a black, a blacksmith, and then a little boy, and, like, the little boy looks like he had bullet holes in his shirt, and, like, the faces <laughs> like, were wrong. Anything related to Christmas. And I was, like, I'm pretty sure this comes to life at night, and my future brother-in-law was, like, judging by the bullet holes in his shirt, you are correct. Yes. So, I mean, yeah, the uncanny valley with, like, wax figures, statues, it's very real they're objectively creepy so no shame for freaking out at a wax museum it makes sense okay this next one my wife has two weird ones one she is terrified of beans especially baked beans or refried green beans are okay you can chase her around the house with an unopened can okay okay wrists she told me drunkenly that when we're in the i want to say that's supposed to be neanderthals when we were Neanderthals. Oh, when we were Neanderthals, it was pretty common for our wrists to explode. She thinks they are super vulnerable and runs away if you show her her wrist or touch her wrist. As far as I know, wrists are very unlikely to explode this is on their own. Yeah. I think this is becoming pudding. Or incoming, incoming pudding, pudding, maybe? The author. <laughs> um, they said, and me too, for similar reasons. However, my friend... However, my fear of moths started when I woke up in the middle of the night feeling something crawling on my face. It was the biggest moth I'd ever seen. Easily one and a half to two inch wingspan and it tried crawling into my ear. I freaked the fuck out, locked myself in the bathroom and refused to come out until my boyfriend had killed it. He zapped it with one of those bug bats. It fried but somehow was still alive so he tried to flush it twice and it just crawled back up and he, so he stomped stamped on it and the bastard thing was still twitching i saw a documentary about the legend of mothman as a kid too and that messed me up a fair bit i mean moths are terrifying as well and that seems like a particularly unkillable moth so yeah get it healthy fear uh fear of my fingernails falling off a kid from third grade class had some of his fingernails fall off for some reason, and I remember seeing one hanging from his finger Ooh. and the teacher having to cut it off. It affects my ability to pop soda tabs. Haha. Oh, God. I mean, I get it. Actually, my uh, grandpa was missing his big toenail. Ooh. So when we were kids, we'd always like be warned to be careful to not step on it because your skin under your nails cool. is really sensitive. Yeah. Um... And so, like, when I was really little, I remember thinking that, like, you could just lose a nail. 
Um, then I found out he lost it in World War II. That's different. And he made up a bunch of shit about how he lost his nail in a heroic battle. Apparently he just got an infection and they had to pull it and it never grew back. It was not nearly as cool as he said. Very heroic. But, you know, very, yeah, his service was a heroic. The specific details him losing his big toenail was not quite as much. This is for America. He was funny. He'd make up a bunch of stuff. But yeah, I do remember being really little and thinking because my grandpa didn't have his toenail that, like, my toenail would eventually fall out. Like, it was a genetic thing. Until I asked him, um, and then found out the truth, like, ten years later. Full of shit, Mervin. Um, okay, I can't slide down a water slide on my stomach because I'm afraid of a rivet bolt catching my belly button and tearing it open. Nothing has ever happened, and I have no fear of going on my back because it's apparently impervious to damage from bolts. I like that they're acknowledging how (laughs) irrational this is, um... And again, yeah, thank you, people of Reddit, for sharing your stories to ultimately be shared. Are we allowed to do this on the podcast? I, I think so. You I put it on the I, internet. I, I think, think a lot of people do this, so we're okay. I think so. You guys put it on the internet. We're not making fun of you. You're great. So why don't we end it with this theory that was on Reddit. So the theory is... Your phobia is actually the cause of your death in a previous life. How did you die? Hmm. So just leave that there to fuck with you for all of eternity. Yeah. So if you're claustrophobia, yeah. how did you die in your past life? Suffocation. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you think you were strangled or suffocated in general? I think buried alive. Buried alive. That's my theory. Okay, real fast, I'm just going to bury Lauren, we're going to do some flooding, and then she'll never speak to me again. It's been fun, everyone. It's been great. Well, thank you for tuning in. If you have questions about phobias or theories or things you want to share, please post on the Facebook. Yeah, um, please, yeah, like our Facebook page, Spooky Psychology St. Charles. We'll post, we'll get better about posting stuff we'll there come back <laughs> maybe we'll return we've been busy lots going on we're working on it um we're excited for 2020 we've got some big things happening and mm-hmm. hopefully a good direction for the podcast oh, yeah. and uh yeah thank you for getting spooky thank you have a good one bye bye